Amen. So good coming together and worshiping God with God's people during the week. Amen. Just getting able to be together, enjoying the fellowship of one another, learning from God's Word by the power of the Holy Spirit, lifting Him up in song, hearing His Word preached, hearing the Word read. I'm not kidding when I say Sundays really are my favorite day of the week. So, it's good to see you this morning. I'm glad that you have chosen to worship with us, uh, despite or in spite of the weather, however you want to put it. Um, But today we are uh, finishing our series on the church. And um, it's been a good series, I think. Uh, But over the last six weeks, we have been looking at our instruction manual. We've been looking at the Word of God and what it has to say about this thing called the church, the body of God of Christ, the family of God, the flock, as Jesus called it. And we've been working with this definition of the church, this 40,000 foot view, big picture definition of what is the church. So when someone says to you from now on, what is the church? Just remember God and you're going to put a few words around it. You're going to say it's the people of God who reflect the character of God all for the glory of God. So since man uh, was created, which man and woman was created, and man rebelled against man, or God rebelled, or man rebelled against God, sorry, I'll get it eventually. There have always been two groups of people in the world, those who have heard and obeyed the word of God, and those who have disobeyed the word of God. So God has created each and every one of us in his image, and then for his children, he has recreated us. We've been born again as his children. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. We are called the, the called out ones, the saints, aliens and foreigners. We are given the Spirit of God and we are given the Word of God in us. Uh, and, and by that, we are able to reflect the character of God. We are able to reflect the character of God. We actually are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to other people. That's what I mean by reflecting God's character. And all of this, the purpose for which we are created, and the motivation for all of this is for the ultimate glory of God. And that's where we end today. And so what I want to do first is, I want to give us a a brief overview over the last five weeks And what we've seen in our study, if you're taking notes, if you're using your uh, handout, they're going to be up here on the screen. Um, And I'm not necessarily going to say all of them verbatim, but they will be up here and you'll be able to follow along with your notes. So week one, we looked at the institution. We looked at the beginning of the church. We looked at Matthew chapter 16, and we saw that Jesus is the one who bought the church and he is the one who is building the church his church. Now his building materials of choice happen to be people. We saw in Matthew chapter 16 that he said, I'm going to build the church on the foundation, as it says in Ephesians 2, of the apostles and the prophets, but also on the confession that Peter made in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus is the Christ and that he is Lord. And so our identity, we also talked about in week one, as God's people, is in the one who has saved us from sin, he has saved us from eternal death, and he has saved us from the wrath of God. And so he's not only saved us from that, but he has saved us for life today. And so our identity as God's people is not in what 
we think about ourselves, our identity as God's people is not in our sins, it's not in our failures, it's not in anything that people, ourselves, or others would think or say about us, but it is in the one who has purchased us with his precious blood. Week two, week number two, we talked about spiritual gifts, uh, and we, we saw... Um, that as the people of God, as he has saved us, he is also uh, uniquely gifted each and every one of us with spiritual gifts. We are united in our profession of faith, but we are different or we are diverse in our giftings. Like our bodies, they have many different parts with many different functions, but they all same, serve the same purpose. And that is the health and the building up, the better of the body. We also looked at the two ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we said that these things do not save a person, but that since our Savior has commanded us to do so, we want to, and so we do obey them. We said that baptism is an external sign of an inward reality. When someone is baptized, it's just an external sign of what has already taken place in the heart of an individual. Uh, We also said that the Lord's Supper uh, is where basically what we're doing is we are remembering the cross. We're looking back to what Jesus did in paying for our sins on the cross, but we're also proclaiming his death today by physically taking the Lord's Supper. And then we are also anticipating his return as well in taking the Lord's Supper. In week three, we looked at different ways in which we reflect the character of God. How do we practically reflect the character of God? We looked at our calling, our calling, who we are as Christians, our identity and our calling. We looked at our mission, what we do as the church in First Peter. Uh, we are called to holiness. We are called to live holy lives because God is holy and because he has made us holy through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And since the Holy Spirit indwells each and every Christian, and the Holy Spirit, as John Stott said, is a missionary spirit, the church is a missionary church. And so our mission is to make disciples of all people. In week four, we saw two practical implications that tie into who we are and what we are to be about doing as a holy church seeking to make disciples. And we talked about church membership and we talked about church discipline. Church membership is where a follower of Christ publicly commits themselves to Christ. They are baptized in obedience to Christ and they they commit themselves to a specific local body. Um, while specifically we said that church membership is not quote-unquote quote mentioned in the Scripture, we see in the Old Testament that God is a covenant God. He is a God of commitment. We see that covenant uh, in marriage as well. In the New Testament, we looked at Acts and we looked at different epistles, and we saw the fact that the way God has designed it is that spiritual growth and accountability happens best in the fertile soil when we commit our lives to one another. We also looked at church discipline. Church discipline. Um, And I know it's a a tricky topic today, 
but basically what we said about it is where it's church discipline is where we're we're holding one another accountable to the claim to be a follower of Christ so in other words if I say I am a follower of Jesus Christ you should hold me accountable to that it should mean something and so church discipline is not a bad thing it is a very loving thing we saw Matthew 18 lays out for us what happens when God's people do not represent the Jesus Christ of the Bible. And the purpose of church discipline is twofold. It's for restoration of the sinner. Well, threefold, really. It's for the restoration of the sinner to the body. It's for, uh, for, for, for genuine repentance to be seen in that person. But it's also for the church. It's for the purity of the church. It's for the unity of the church. And it's so that the church can see that we take sin seriously because God takes it seriously. Last week, last week, we uh, looked at the everyday body of Christ. We looked at the everyday body of Christ. We looked pretty intently at Acts 2, 42 through 47, and we saw this group of believers who were committing themselves to God and to one another because of their common life that they shared in Christ with one another. And so as they devoted themselves to biblical doctrine, to worship and to spiritual fellowship, naturally, they were fulfilling their calling to be holy and their mission to make disciples. And the Lord was adding to them day by day. And so it continues today. Until Jesus Christ returns, he is building his kingdom, he is drawing sinners unto himself, and he is accomplishing people to this end. In Glendale, in the valley, in our homes, in our lives, in the United States, in Oregon, and around the world. People from every language, nation, tongue, and tribe. The Lord is building His church. And so we end our study this morning with the greatest question we need to ask about the church. This is, if you didn't listen the whole time uh, we were going through this, today is the day to, to, to pay attention. And the question that we're going to ask ourselves is, why on earth does the church exist? I mean, why did God do this? What's, I mean, what, 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 what is the purpose of coming together, singing some songs, hearing the, hearing the word, uh, and going about our, our day so we can go have some lunch? So, I know we're Baptists. We've got to talk about food at some point. Now, you ask any given Christian this question, I think. You say, why does the church exist? Why are uh, why does the church exist? You're going to get mer- very, very different in a wide variety of answers. Some people are going to say it exists to make disciples. Some people are going to say it exists to meet my needs and my idea of what church is. Some people are going to say it's to worship God. It's to serve the community, to be a lighthouse for Jesus Christ. In my study uh, during this week, I found an interesting survey um, I want to be very careful and selective about how I use surveys because uh, we're people. We're not statistics. I want you to understand that. But so, so surveys do serve a purpose, though. And I, I found this one survey of a thousand different churches. Now, that's a lot of different churches. A thousand church members is a lot. But a thousand churches spanning denominations were polled this question. They, they were asked, why does the church exist? exists. That's what you're going to see uh, if you've caught the, the, the typo in, in, your, in your handout yet. It says why the church exists. So uh, Brooke was the one who is gifted with uh, the, the English and grammar and everything in our 
family, so, uh, but that's why I said that. So why does the church exist? In this poll, 89% of church members, not people who just go to the church, but church members said that the church exists for their needs, to meet their needs. Now, I see some of you, and I see your reactions, and, and, that, and I'll be honest, that's the reaction that I had at first. You know, how selfish, how self-absorbed are these people to think that it's not all about God and others. It's, it's about me? But we need to realize that the problem is not that the majority of people think that church is about meeting their needs. Having our needs met is a daily part of our lives. I just want to explain that to you. If, for instance, if you don't realize your need to eat and to drink water, especially in the cold Oregon temperatures, it's not as easy or you don't think as much to drink water, you will dehydrate and you will starve because God has put that need within us. If you do not see a need to go out and work and make a living, you'll be homeless and you'll starve. So the problem, the breakdown is not so much saying that church is all about meeting my needs. The problem is in how we define the word needs. What are our needs? We realize this. We realize this when someone says, I need a cigarette. We know immediately that they're not, they don't actually physically need that to survive. They're saying that because they have grown accustomed to it. Because that is their preference. If, you, if your average churchgoer defines having his or her needs met by saying, I want to find a church that preaching that I like, preaching that makes me feel good and gives me a little shot of Jesus juice, and I can go out about my, about my life and live it however I want, a children's ministry that just wows my kids and is just so fun for them, music I like to listen to on the radio, and people that I like to be around, then yes, we have gone about defining why the church exists all wrong understanding our purpose and God's purpose in the church. And so we need to turn to our instruction manual. We need to turn to the Word of God and ask ourselves, why were we created and why were we recreated in Jesus Christ? And we find a very different answer than for my preferences and for what I like. Isaiah 43, 7 says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. The church, the people of God, exist for the glory of God. That's why we exist as the church. But as we will see, when God is truly glorified, when God is lifted up, when he is seen as he truly is, God's people reap the benefit of that. And all of our needs, real needs, are met. I want us to take a walk and see this through the Old Testament here. I need to make sure that, that, uh, that I'm on pace. Okay, I'm, I'm doing good. Okay, so God redeems his people for his glory. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. If you're studying Ezekiel ever and you want to know Ezekiel's theology and what he believes about God 
and, and what he believes about man. Just, just read Ezekiel 36 and 37. It'll blow your mind. So in Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel, it says, he is prophesying to the mountains. He's prophesying to Israel. And in verse 21 of Ezekiel 36, it says this, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned, profaned among the nations. Jump up to verse 20. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that the people said, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. One of the reasons that God judged Israel, one of the reasons that God sent them into exile was because they were profaning, which means that he, they, were, they were making common the name of God. They were making it common among all the other gods of the land. They were not trusting and obeying God like he had commanded, and they wanted to be more like their neighbors than Yahweh. So what is God going to do about this? Well, it says in verse 22, it says, Therefore, says the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake. So, th- so he's about to do something, but he says, It's not for your sake, O Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned, um, profaned among the nations to which you have come. Verse 23, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations. See, he keeps repeating this over and over. Um, And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, the Lord God, uh, when when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. So he says I'm going to act, but it's not going to be on your behalf. However, you're going to reap the benefit of what I am about to do. Their cities, it says later on, are going to be rebuilt. There's going to be no more famine. The land is going to be restored. The temple is going to offer sacrifices to God again. And later on we read in Ezra that once again they treasured the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God. And so what do we get from this? Is that that glorifying God doesn't mean that we're going to give something to Him that he doesn't have or he is not already. Does that make sense? We're not giving something to him or ascribing something to him that he is not already. God is already sovereign. He is already on his throne. He is already good. He is already loving. He is already compassionate and gracious. It's the fact that we have to realize it. But something we often forget is the fact that he graciously sends us into exile, just like he did with Israel, for the purpose of being able to say, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for rest. Sometimes that's why we go through different things. A good exercise for you this week would be to go through Ezekiel 36 and find out how many times the phrase is, I will. I will, I will, I will, I will. God redeems his people for his glory. If you're taking notes, write down Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain for you that I may not cut you off. 
Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, he says it twice, I will do it. For how will my name be profaned? And then he says this, my glory I will not share with another. But in what ways, and you know, in in preparing for this, you know, searching my own heart, in, in what ways is it, do we deflect the glory of God to ourselves or to other things in our lives? You know, like those sun shields that you see people using to, to get a tan. Instead of letting the light of the sun shine on us and to heat us up so that we can reflect to others that we have been in His presence We point it on other things and we enjoy other things apart from God. That's what sin is. Sin is not that we enjoy other things or that we find uh, or, or that we enjoy things or that we are happy in things. Sin is when we find our happiness in something that has absolutely nothing to do with the Creator. And so I know it's easy for me to take that sun shield and put it in the wrong place, especially like when Isaiah says, in the furnace of affliction. When we're going through sufferings, when God turns up the heat and he begins to refine us like silver and gold, we begin to crack and we give in to impatience in the process. We give in to grumbling in the process. We give in to all of these different things that he does not want us to. We become faithless and prayerless And we try to fix it on our own, in our own strength, instead of coming to Abba Father. And saying, God, I know you're the one who has your hand on the control of the furnace, but I just really don't know what's going on here. I really don't like this. I really want to get through this. Can we just speed up the process a little? But just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says that he was in there with them. He was with them in the fire. You know, the Gospels are just a snapshot of Jesus' life. The end of John says that there was a lot of other things that Jesus did and said, but these were written that we may believe. And in the Gospels, many times it says over, and I highlight that fact because of the fact of the matter is, in the Gospels, it says many times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that he went away to the mountain and he spent time with his father. This is where we experience the glory of God. And he begins to refine us like silver. He begins to purify us. He takes the dross out of us so that we reflect him and that we are pure gold when he is done. We see this principle in the New Testament well. The church was created for the glory of God. God saving his people for his glory. If you're taking notes, Ephesians 3, 10 through 12. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through him in faith. So the church exists to show the world and to show the unseen spiritual realm that we cannot see with our own physical eyes the wisdom and the greatness 
of our God. So, we look at all these scriptures and, and we see, or we say, I get it, the point is, is that the church is created for the glory of God. Now, if you're like me, you may naturally be thinking then, okay, is God just egocentric? Is he just obsessed with himself? Is he just narcissistic? Just sitting up there obsessed with his own praise and glory? The short answer is no. But I want to show you why. So turn with me to John 17. John 17 is one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament. It's the high priestly prayer. It's part of the Olivet Discourse. In John 13, he washes his disciples' feet. In John 14, he says, hey, I'm going to the Father, but I'm going to prepare a place for you, and one day you're going to come there with me. John 15, he says, hey, abide in me until then. And then in chapter 16, he says, I'm going to send you the paraclete. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you the helper. And he's going to be with you always. And then he turns his attention and he prays to the Father. So beginning in verse 1, it says in John 17, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to, have, to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life, that they may know the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The reason that God seeks his glory in all that he does in the church, in creation, in everything that happens in your life and in my life is because he has been and he always will be a glorious God. That may sound simple, so simple a child can understand, but that's the truth. He had that glory before the foundation of the world and he always will. You say, well, that's not enough. I want proof. I want proof that he is a good and glorious God. Well, continue with me and stay with me in in verse 9. Look with me at verse 9. It says, he continues to pray for them. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that, that, they, have, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's incredible. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given to me. I have guarded them, and not one of them have been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures may be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. And so here we see the most precious thing in all of creation. 
the Son of God, the most precious thing to God, the Father is the Son of God, given up as a sacrifice for sinful man. So why is God so glorious? Well, verse 8, so that they might have the truth about who God is. Verse 10, that they might share in His glory. Verse 12, that they might have His protection. Verse 13, that they might have His joy. Verse 14, that we might have His word. Verse 17, that we may be sanctified by His word. Verse 18, that we might be sent into the world to tell others the good news. And ultimately, the Son of God became a man. He set Himself apart for, ser- for serving His heavenly Daddy so that we would be set apart to reflect His glory. That's what it says. So when God is truly, what's, what's the takeaway? When God is truly revealed and then experienced on a personal level for who he really is as a glorious God, we reap the benefit and he gets the right glory. So in the remainder of our time, what I want to do, and you see it there on your outline there, is I want to give us four practical ways in which we glorify God. Because we talk about the glory of God. We could, we could preach a six-month series on the glory of God. But what does it practically look like for us as a church to bring glory to God? And so there on your outline it says that the church that brings glory to God is a church that, first of all, worships God. As God's people, we proclaim Him Monday through Sunday that we love Him and that we belong to Him when we worship Him according to who He has revealed Himself to be. Let me explain what I mean by that. He, so Monday through Sunday, we proclaim to others in our lives that we belong to Him and that we love Him when we worship Him according to who He has revealed Himself to be. That is why preaching of the Word of God is no small matter. And that is why us spending time personally in our daily lives in the Word of God is no small matter as well. Because the fact of the matter is, if we are going to worship someone, it's important to know what the person is like that we are worshiping. Our culture understands this. I've talked to several different people who have met people online and they tell me that in the first, in the first few months or few weeks or whatever getting to know the person, they do homework on the person. They might run a background check on them. They might look at their Facebook profile. They might try to find some of their friends and ask them what they're like. Why? Because they want to get to know the person that they are getting to know better and maybe falling in love with. So our culture understands that. The fact of the matter is, or the question is, do you know the Lord? Not have you done book studies, not have you just read your Bible, but do you know the Lord? Can you say with the psalmist that I am ascribing to the Lord the glory due His name? That I'm worshiping the Lord in the splendor of His holiness? This is an experiential thing. This is an experiential thing, not only of the heart and of the emotion, of the feelings, but also of the mind. Christianity is a religion of the mind as well as the heart. God has put in each and every human both the desire and the capacity to worship. But the problem is, as John Piper points out, 
is not that the fact that people know and have this innate desire to worship God, it's that they worship other things other than God. And that, brothers and sisters, is why missions exist, is because people worship other gods other than the one true living supreme God. But even as followers of Jesus Christ in a fallen world, we don't always worship him as we ought. And so the way in which we fight against the flesh, the world, and the devil is we do several things. We listen to songs that stir our hearts and minds to love, uh, have affections for God, but also that are filled with the truth of God. We do that at church as well. But we renew our minds Monday through Sunday in His Word. So we renewing, as we're renewing our minds, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says you've got to do something else though. You've got to offer your body as a living sacrifice. I always find it interesting that he doesn't say offer your heart, because uh, it says love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that spiritual worship is actually offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. And the reason is, is and, and any one of you could do this. You could do an audit in my life and you could watch how I treat my body when no one else is looking, and you could know exactly what I worship. Plain as day. How you treat your body is what you worship. And so we worship Him with sacrifices of purity, of self-control, of holding of our tongue, of going where God wants us to go, not going where He doesn't want us to go, being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to those in our lives. To truly know God is to worship Him, and to worship Him, we have to know Him. We don't just worship individually, though. We also worship as a church. We bring glory to God, um, to Him, by coming together on Sundays, which we call the Lord's Day. We worship on Sundays because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and the, the day that the early church Uh, worship Jesus Christ. So we worship God on Sunday, as John 4 says, in spirit and in truth, and singing songs, again, that stir our affections, but that are also filled with the truth of who God is. You know, in something about worship, when, 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 when we're singing songs in here, I try to remind myself of this, but I, I pray you do too, is that when we sing songs here on Sunday mornings, it should not be an exercise that is disconnected from our lives throughout the week. I mean, what I mean by that is I can remember when Brooke and I were struggling with a call to go uh, to, to Guinea, West Africa as interns with a ministry called Pioneer Bible Translators. We were visiting some friends at uh, a church in East Texas, and um, I really wasn't expecting what the Lord did that day, but, but he really spoke to me through that time of worship and confirmed in our hearts that we needed to go. And we ended up going. But it was through that worship experience that God brought that to mind. So our, when we come in here to worship, it's not that we aren't thinking about our week at all. We, we can't help but it. But how do we bring those things before the throne of Christ as we are adoring him for who he is and for what he has done for us. We hear the word of God preached. When the word of God is preached, no matter who is up here, it should be expounded. It should be explained in its proper historical, linguistic, cultural context. But then it should also be 
applied. It should be illustrated. It should be able to be understood because of all of God's truth is ultimately, as it says in John 17, 17, is what sanctifies us and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. And ultimately, uh, we also see this in the ordinances of the church and when the, and the word of God is read. And because ultimately, 1 Timothy 3.15 says that the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth to the world. Number two is we care for one another. The church that glorifies God is a church that cares for one another. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about this over the last few weeks. Well, we care for one another because simply we belong to one another. We've been united to one another by faith in Christ. And so it should come natural. I'll read a quote here from the book that we're doing on Wednesday night, uh, Jerry Bridges' book, True Community. This quote really stuck with me on this here. It says, Can you imagine uh, the ear making the following comment to the eye? Sadly, uh, did you hear about the serious problem the foot is having? My, my, isn't that too bad? The foot should really have his act together. No, no, the body does not behave that way at all. Instead, the entire body cries out, Ow, my foot hurts! And that's how we should feel when we go through different things as the body of Christ. So a God-glorifying church is a church that cares for one another. By the way, this church does a pretty good job of that. I just say that. All glory to God, but I'm serious. This church does a pretty good job of caring for one another. Building one another up. That's the next thing we see here. We are to build one another up. This is how God fulfills his purpose in the church. We saw that last week uh, in Acts 2, 42 through 47, that as they were devoting themselves to the word of God, to worship, to gathering together, the church was being built up and it was being added to. It was being added to. You know, and when it comes to needs, like the, 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 the survey earlier, your greatest need and my greatest need well, ultimately, we, we need food and clothing. The New Testament talks about that. We need food, clothing, and shelter. But even more than that, our souls need to be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That our souls best happen when God's people are obeying Him. When the under-shepherds are caring for the people and setting an example to the flock, when the deacons are serving the body, when the members are caring for one another and are being loved and given opportunities to use their spiritual gift to build up the body of Christ, our spiritual muscles begin to grow. The church is like a spiritual gym. The church is like a spiritual gym in a sense. And so since none of us have arrived, I don't think any of us would raise our hand and say, okay, I'm fully mature. You know, I've, I've reached as far as I can grow. None of us have arrived. So the question is, is not just am I growing, but is the person to my left and my right growing as well? That's when we have really reached maturity, when we're not only concerned about our own spiritual growth, but when we are concerned about the spiritual growth of others in the church as well. So as the Lord is doing all these things in the church that glorifies Him, number four, the church that glorifies God is a church that reaches out to the lost. We reflect Christ as the moon reflects the sun. 
The moon's light is not his light. It's the sun's light. And we reflect Christ to the world. We are literally the light of Jesus Christ to the world in a great way when we tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the way that God has set it up. It says in in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. God could have done it any way he wanted to, but the fact of the matter is that God grows his kingdom through his people. And it is a privilege and it is such a joy. As one of my friends said one time, it's addicting to win people to Christ. Proverbs says, he who wins souls is wise. But I mean, it's it's addicting. I mean, just, just getting to be a part of the process, whether it's planting the seed, whether it's watering the seed, whether it's reaping the harvest, just to be a part of the process, it's such a privilege. It's such a joy. It brings delight to our souls to get to do that. You know, think about, what if, what if God didn't send someone to reach out to tell him about the love of Jesus Christ for you? I mean, where would you be today? If someone did not tell you the good news of Jesus Christ, if you didn't sit in a church and get to hear it week after week, month after month, year after year, a church that does not reach out to the lost is like a doctor who sits in the operating room and he knows exactly what he needs to do to the patient for them to survive the prescription that they need, but he just sits there with his hands folded. And so how are we shining forth the light of Jesus Christ? How are we reaching out to the lost for the sake of Christ? We need to put on our spiritual glasses and see people as they really are. And I want to end this series with a challenge. I want to end this series with a challenge to you all and to me as well. I'm going to do this as well. So I didn't know there was going to be homework. Well, there is. But the good news is you have till Easter to do it. Okay? So the deadline is Easter. But here's the challenge. One person in your life, it may be a family member, it may be someone at work or school, or maybe just a complete stranger that God puts in your life. One person in your life that you might even randomly meet, I want you to intentionally and prayerfully point them to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean by that. And if, you know, if you're like some people I know, you're nervous and you're like, oh gosh, I know, I know I need to share my faith. I know I need to be doing this. I just don't know where to start. I want to give you some help. You know, because we're all at different stages, right? We're all at different seasons in our lives. We're all at different stages in our maturity. And that's okay. That's okay. And so four different levels that I want you to consider. And you decide where you are and what you need to do between you and the Lord. The first one is this. You need to pray and you need to invite someone to church. As simple as that. Don't have to share the gospel. I know it's crazy. Pastor's saying you don't have to share the, don't have to share the gospel, but start there. It's a place to start. Just invite them to church. Level two, pray and just give them a gospel track. If you don't have a good gospel track, there are some right there in the back. And so maybe you need to just hand someone a gospel track and say, you know what, Jesus has done a whole lot in my life. Um, would you just read this? And that be it. Level three, you need to share your testimony with someone. Maybe you're maturing in your faith and you've done some of these things before and you say, okay, well, I just need to tell someone else what Jesus Christ has done 
in my life and just say, hey, you know what? For what it's worth, um, call them up. Whoever it is the Lord puts in your life, share what Jesus Christ has done in your life, how he has saved you. And level four would be to go out and share the gospel with people. Remember a couple weeks ago, I gave you a little help for that. God, man, Christ, response. God created everything. Man sinned and messed it up. Everyone born after that is a sinner. Christ came to pay the penalty of our sins in response. All those who repent and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation will be saved. And don't forget, if you do share the whole gospel with people, to ask them, hey, what is holding you back today from making that prayer? From crying out to the Lord Jesus Christ and asking him to save you. And if they say nothing, the Lord gives you that opportunity, just have them pray after you. And say, if this is really what you mean, if this is really how you feel in your heart, then just pray this prayer after me. It's a glorious opportunity. But the fact of the matter is, we have to pray for opportunities, and we have to pray for boldness. And we need to tell them about how glorious God is, if He really is. If we have really tasted and seen that He is good. And so as His people, as we continue next week we're going to start back in philippians as we continue to look at god's instruction manual for all things and we consider the church over these last six weeks this is how we will be successful as god's people as we live for him and we seek to glorify him let's pray father i thank you for your word i thank you for the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us the light shined in our hearts, Lord, even though we loved and loved the darkness, Lord Jesus. You sent Christ and you've given us your spirit, Lord. God, and I pray for each and every person who's here this morning, God, that they would have been convicted, that they would be encouraged.